your car hit by a deer? The house washed into the river? Does your toast have those mold spots on it? Well, the next snap judgment. From PRX and NPR, we accept no excuses. Snap proudly presents Making It Work. Storytelling with a beat. Do not miss it. This Snap Judgment podcast is supported by MailChimp. More than 5 million people and businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters, and MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. Okay, so this happens every day. You want to make some pancakes, but you just ran out of milk. The kids are hungry. It would take almost an hour to go to the store and back. You don't have that kind of time. What do you do? Well, I tell you what you do. You make it work. Or maybe you've got some orange juice. That's right, kids. Today, we're having special orangey pancakes. We are a species that sees a way out of no way. Tell us it can't be done, and I'll tell you that you simply haven't thought about it hard enough. Today, on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Making It Work. Amazing stories from real people who simply would not accept no for an answer. My name is Glenn Washington. Get ready, because this is Snap Judgment. Now, for our first story, we're going to dive into the troubled aspects of one man's psyche. And as such, those with small children should know that listener discretion is advised. Jason Leopold, he moved from New York to L.A., wanted to marry his girlfriend, restart his life, begin a career in journalism. But Jason brought something with him, something he'd been keeping secret for a very long time. Physically, physically, I felt like I needed to have cocaine. And I started using it behind her back. I became incredibly paranoid. When I would lie down at night, I felt like literally there were rats crawling all over my body. I would just jump around and move the blankets and scream because I thought that these rats were crawling all over me. And Lisa thought I was losing it. She thought I was going insane. She went to see a therapist to talk about it. The therapist said, your husband's on drugs, <laughs> clearly. Together, we went to couples therapy. And Lisa said, Jason, I know you've been doing drugs. Everyone in my family knows it. And if you don't get any help, we can't be together anymore. What are you talking about? I'm not on drugs. I can't believe this. I'm out of here. And I walked out, walked out of the therapist's office. Lisa started crying. As I left the therapist's office, I got to figure out now how to get out of California and start all over again. That was my first thought. And I just started walking to my in-law's house. I rang the doorbell and my mother-in-law answered the door. And I just said, help me, please help me. And next thing I know, Lisa's aunt and her mother-in-law were driving me to rehab. I've been sober ever since. 
you know, I got a job at the LA Times right after I got out of rehab. What happened at the LA Times? There was like an incident, right? I did well at the LA Times. Worked my way up the ladder, promoted to city editor. It was my first entry into the real world of what a newsroom was like. I expected people digging into their desk drawers and, you know, secretly taking swigs of whiskey, smoking like chimneys, yelling over each other, cursing left and right. It was nothing like that. What was it like? It was sanitized. It was completely sanitized. There was another city editor I worked with who brought her kids in to work. And I just thought that that was just unbelievable. She would do this every single day. I protested enough to the point where the editor, my editor, allowed the woman to work at home. That made me even more angry. One day, I had music on in the newsroom. I received a note on my computer from the woman who I used to work with, who said I needed to turn down my music. And I said, well, how can you hear my music? You're at home. And she said, well, one of the reporters just sent me a note saying your music is distracting him. You've got to be kidding me. I stood up and I said, who the f- just sent Deneen a note saying my music is too loud. And this little kid stands up and said it was me. And I said, you m- I'll rip your head off, he says to me. Let's go outside. We never made it outside. I was the president of the Society of Professional Journalists, (laughs) the local Los Angeles chapter. The next thing you know, I get a phone call from my editor. And he said, I got bad news for you. David, who raised the complaint... Uh, He went to Human Resources. I've got no choice. We have to fire you. I just lost it. I started crying. I was trying to rebuild my life, and it all came crashing down. I was clean and sober in terms of the fact that I was not using drugs or alcohol, but I was not clean and sober in my mind, in my head. I was still a rageaholic. I was still that addict. But you know, I got into my car and I checked my voicemail and there was a message from a woman from Dow Jones Newswires. She got my resume and she said, give me a call. I'd like to talk to you about a job. That was the very same day. Very same day. Wow. It was incredible. It um, led me into this whole other world of reporting and investigative journalism. Do you feel like getting the Dow Jones job so soon after kept you from learning a lesson from the, the L.A. Times experience? You know, it was as if I felt like I was the victim, you know, that I was, that there really was no lesson to learn. When did you feel like you you did learn that lesson? I would say I feel like the lesson was finally learned after I reported the story on Karl Rove. I was chasing this, this high. More and more scoops. More and more scoops. Everyone was after Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove never apologizes. He just might wind up indicted. At issue here is. Everyone wanted to know what did Carl Rove know? When did he know it? What was his involvement? It was a Saturday afternoon. I was driving Lisa to pick up her car. I get a phone call from one of my sources. Hello? Jason. Jason. Got some news for you. You ready? You ready? Yes. Carl Rove was indicted last night. Carl Rove was indicted last night. I literally pulled the car over. I said, what? Lisa had no idea what was going on. She says, what? what's going on? What's going on? And I said, shh, shh. Lisa, this is huge news. Carl Rove just got indicted. I got to drop you off and I got to go home and I need to write this story. So I dropped her off. You know, I get back on the phone. 
my source starts going in, into detail, so basically deal, stating night, that last night, meaning Friday, there was a meeting, Patrick Fitzgerald showed up, he was a special prosecutor with an indictment. I made a couple of other phone calls to two other sources and they heard it also. They heard that this, you know, that this happened, that Karl Rove was indicted secretly. I called up the spokesperson for Patrick Fitzgerald. Now, it was a Saturday. I knew the spokesperson wasn't going to get the message, um, but I left him a message and I didn't hear back. And I put a story together and I reported it. I got the goods. I am going to break the biggest story ever. Right then. And 12 hours goes by. Nobody's following it up. And 24 hours goes by. And oh, nobody is taking it on. No one. I got wrong information and I reported it. I reported it as if it were fact, instead of saying there's a rumor going on out there, uh, we can't verify this, don't know if it's true. You have to understand that this story came out right at the time that my book came out. And why that's important is that my book is a memoir, and it's a memoir in which I reveal all these deep, dark secrets. I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, the timing sucked. It really sucked. The right wing wanted to hang me. I might as well just have wrapped it in a little bow for them. And then the left attacked me as well. Any credibility I had was absolutely gone. It was out the window. I no longer had it. I no longer possessed it. It was like just standing stark naked in front of the world. I'm trying to go back to that time. It's like, what the was I thinking? Not only was the phone call on a Saturday, it's like, why didn't I just put a question mark at the end, you know, of Carl Rove being indicted? I mean, that changed everything for me. I'm tired. I don't have the energy to do that anymore. I move slower now. I don't feel that I'm in danger of repeating the mistakes I've made in the past. And, and why is that? Well... I just want to make up for the, the past, the, the, the mistakes that I made. And that means waiting, waiting. And that means, guess what? Somebody else is going to break the story. Last year, I had been handed a story about some changes in procedures over at Guantanamo. And I called the spokesperson at Joint Task Force Guantanamo for a comment. And I didn't receive a comment. And I kind of just waited on it. About a week or so later, the Associated Press comes out with the story. I can tell you, I really, really pissed me off, you know, because I would have had a scoop. But you know what? I did have something else to offer. I had some of the more intimate details of this new policy and why it was being implemented. But I will tell you that seeing that scoop and knowing that I had it, did I did clench my teeth. I was really annoyed. I may have hit the wall with my fist. <laughs> Jason Leopold is the lead investigative reporter for truthout.org and the author of the book, News Junkie. That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's own Nick Vanderkolk with Brendan Baker and Sarah Liu. This was but a small excerpt of Jason's amazing life story, which originally aired on the Love & Radio podcast. It's got lots of glam metal and run-ins with the mafia. We'll have a link to it on our website, snapjudgment.com. Org. Making it work. That's what this show is all about. And when Snap returns, we're going to give the mic to a guy trying to talk to a lady that some say he shouldn't be speaking to at all. And 
when our hero falls five months behind on his rent, decisions have to be made. With Snap Judgment, the Making It Work episode continues. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap. If you're looking for something new, there are lots of other NPR podcasts, like Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's a roundtable discussion of movies, books, television, and more. Look for NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour on iTunes under Podcasts. Welcome back to Snap, the Making It Work episode. Now, you know Lots of people, lots of folk. They don't like other folk because of their race. That's just part of the American story. But some people, they flip the script. And they might like other people a little bit too much because of their race. You know, it's hard to grow up in America as an Asian woman and not encounter some Caucasian, usually Caucasian man, who has this sort of unusual attraction for Asian women. There's terms for it, like yellow fever, rice king, or Asiaphiles. It rhymes with pedophile for a certain reason. In my life, I've been hit on by so many men who would sort of stare at a little bit too long. Um, then they kind of come up and try to speak to you in an Asian language that you don't speak. <laughs> I was really tired of being objectified. And I thought, oh, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea to just turn the tables and point the camera in their direction? I decided to make the documentary Seeking Asian Female. So I went onto Craigslist and websites like asiafriendfinder.com, which they specialize in introducing Western men to Asian women. Um, and I started asking the men who post ads there if they would talk to me for my film. I just wanted to understand why. It's their hair. It's the long black hair that's really eye-catching. It's the whole mysterious kind of look. I think they give more consideration to how the man feels than sometimes themselves. Yeah, they are kind of subtle and kind of quiet. But Stephen in particular had this kind of um, unfiltered quality about him and would say things like, you know, I was probably originally looking for a slave when I first started. I mean, I'm quoting him. I and mean, he would kind of laugh about that. Uh, idyllic uh, servant girl who would cook these beautiful meals. And think, Gee, would it be like that? No. Of course, as an individual, I felt <laughs> a little bit disturbed. But as a filmmaker, he was quite fascinating. So then I started filming him. She looks so Chinese. What does that mean? You can't look any more Chinese than her. <laughs> what does that mean, she looks so Chinese? You look very Chinese, too. He really wasn't sort of marriage material for any woman. He didn't have a lot of money. He didn't own a house. He didn't even own a car. Yet he had such an extreme, undying commitment to find an Asian woman. I thought he was just sort of living in a fantasy. He showed me all of these files that he kept mail order catalogs. There were just pictures of hundreds of young Asian women. These are different girls that I've written to. They're all just so beautiful. He asked every single woman who he met, who he got to a first date with, if they would marry him. You know, I've been watching him search for, you know, many years, and I was cutting his storyline that he was never going to find anyone. And then I got this call from him, and he said, would you like to film my wedding? I found somebody in China who's going to marry me. I couldn't believe it. I almost felt sorry for Stephen. These women that he was, he was dating online, they knew that he was sort of this prey that they could take advantage of. He would just send them money. So by the time he met Sandy, I had this really bad feeling that this was just going to get really ugly. So the first time I met Sandy was when she walked off the plane at San Francisco International Airport and landed in America for the first time. This is Sandy. She seemed 
really sweet. <laughs> she seemed really innocent. I was thinking, how is this possible? She's 30, he's 60. And then I find out she doesn't actually speak English, and Stephen didn't speak any Chinese. All of a sudden I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this poor young woman, she has no idea what's happening. And I felt this overwhelming need to sort of protect her. The first thing that Sandy did was that she took over the kitchen. And she just started scrubbing and cleaning. He loved it, obviously. He was in, in heaven. You know, she would cook these elaborate Chinese meals for him. She told Stephen, I knew you weren't rich, but I didn't know you were poor. People <laughs> say, your husband have a house? Have a car? No, no house, no car, no money. <laughs> Sandy came from Huangshan in Anhui province. Anhui province is one of the poorest regions in China, and she grew up as a tea farmer. Then she migrated thousands of miles to Shenzhen, China. She found her way out of the factory floor and eventually became the executive secretary at a fashion company. Everybody says it doesn't make sense. You should try to find a younger guy. And why would you choose him? I felt like we had so many similar interests and hobbies. And he's just so special. He's really not like anyone else. In China, it's not like I could ever marry someone rich. I've never wanted to marry for money. I think you marry the same kind of person that you are. It's better to be realistic, right? Sometimes I'll come home and uh, she'll be hiding behind uh, the refrigerator or something. One time she was hiding in the closet and she lets me look around. She'll be in there smiling. It's like funny. It's funny. The day is full of little things like that. It's easy to share. Even though Sandy seemed like she really liked Stephen, who could really tell? And I was sitting there thinking, you know, is this really just an act? And then I got a call, and it was Stephen saying, you have to help me. We've had a major misunderstanding. And so I show up at their apartment. Sandy had found all these pictures that Stephen had collected of all the Asian women from before. And she just went ballistic. In China, if you break up with someone, you can't still be friends. She asked him to buy all these things for her. Chinese people can't casually accept precious gifts from other people. Stupid. Oh my gosh, these are genuine feelings that she has for him. Sandy was really hurt. So I'm hearing them fight, and they're not communicating. It was really hard to watch them struggle. Uh, <laughs> so... I began translating. Okay, Stephen, why is it that you still have pictures of Molly? It took a while to fade away, but I'm way over it. Let me let me translate. Stephen said that's what you say, but how do we know that your heart feels that way for real? I can only prove my love day by day. Oh my gosh, I can't translate that. At the end of the scene, I realized, wait a minute, they've kind of made up. And how much of that was because I was translating? This is not what you're supposed to do as a documentary filmmaker. You're supposed to be in a, behind the camera and not influence your subject. The objectivity had gone completely out the window. I didn't want to be in this documentary. It was supposed to be about them. But I was becoming a character in the story. We really started to insert my backstory into the film that, um, yes, full disclosure, I'm actually married to a white guy. <laughs> the irony, of course, is that, you know, when I walked down the street with my husband, I'm sure other people were thinking the same thing about me. Like, oh, she's such a sellout. When Sandy arrived in America, she came in on the K-1 fiancé visa, and the way that works is you have 90 days to decide whether or not the person that you are engaged to is the person that you really want to marry. And if you don't marry that person, you have to go home. Eventually, they asked me to translate more and more. As I was translating them, I really started not just translating, but realized that I was kind of mediating and kind of becoming their marriage counselor. It got pretty crazy. I'd get these late-night phone calls from them. Anytime they had a conflict, they would call me. As they really got to know each other, the reality hit. 
her real-life personality came out, and she was no longer this sort of figment of his imagination or this kind of, you know, ideal woman. She demanded that he step up to the plate and clean the house as well. What? Speaking English. We got to do that first before everything else? No, only this. Clean house first. This is how I'm supposed to deal with it? You dump it in here? I'm sorry. That's how you dump it. That's how you give it to me. This is my life and the man I chose. It's too late to go home now. I'll lose face. If I go home, I won't. It's impossible. You see, in China, everyone will talk behind my back. I won't be able to lift my head in public. So now I can only move forward. I can't look back. I mean, it's really clear what you're getting out of this relationship, I think. Well, uh, what do you think she gets out of it? Uh, a chance at a new, new life, a new world? Oh, God. So right when Sandy was really having some doubts about getting married, Stephen turned to me and he just came out and thanked me. He said if it hadn't been for you, Sandy would have gone back to China by now. She told him that. I absolutely questioned whether I had done the right thing at that moment. Would she not, perhaps, be better off if she'd stayed in China or just went home? You know, Shenzhen is like this thriving metropolis, and she'd be living in her own culture where she could have a home, I mean, have friends and have her life. This had really gone too far. The success or failure of their relationship should not be reliant on me. You've done it. Wonderful, miraculous job, even today. But you're not God. You're just a director. Marriage should not be entered into lightly, but with certainty, mutual respect, and a sense of reverence that does not preclude humor or joy. Here they are about to get married, and there's all these unanswered questions. Should it, you know, is it the right thing? Should she really go through with it? And as I was filming them, I couldn't help wonder. They had this idea in their mind that they really wanted to get married, no matter what, no matter how absurd it was, no matter how difficult it might be. But at the same time, did I really have a part to play in them getting married? My first instinct was just to pick her up and take her back to China. But, you know, that, that's also kind of making an assumption that I know the right thing for her. It's so easy to go to this place where Sandy was a victim, but that doesn't give her enough credit. She was somebody who knew how to take care of herself and knew exactly <laughs> what was the right thing for her. With this ring, as you wed and offer as a symbol of our true love. I now pronounce you husband and wife. I watched Stephen progress. I watched him clean up his act, you know, slowly. He worked really hard to try to win the heart of this young Chinese woman. At, at first, I went into this search thinking uh, the traditional stereotype of getting someone who, you know, to, to stay home, do the housework, clean me, you know, take care of me, that kind of thing. But that's, that's not very uh, growth-oriented. Oh, oh my God. Everything looks good, clean, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's what I like. Oh, God. <laughs> and I totally have a soft spot for Stephen now. Is it condoning yellow fever? Um, my whole relationship to yellow fever changed in the making of the film. It still makes me uncomfortable when I see an older Western man with a really young Asian woman. But at the same time now, I, I see those two people as individuals with their own story. I went into thinking that if I did this film, maybe I might cure him of his yellow fever. And yet, Simon is still an Asia-file. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Try to figure that one out. I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm friends with him and he's an Asia-file.
big thanks to the woman behind the film, Debbie Lum. Seeking Asian Female, this film is playing in selected cities nationwide. I know you want to see it, Seeking Asian Female. We're going to have a link on our website so you can ask them to come to your town at snapjudgment.org. Much love, of course, to Stephen and Sandy for letting us into their lives. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Snap Judgment, the Making It Work episode. Be right back in a moment. Stay tuned. Hey, thanks for listening to Snap. Before you start your weekend, don't forget to download Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's just one of the many NPR podcasts available on iTunes. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Making It Work episode. My name is Glenn Washington. Today, we're digging into stories from people who don't have it just handed to them on a platter. For our next story, we go to the heart of what's happening, New York City, Queens, where MC Homeboy Sandman tells his story. I think this is 2008. When I found out what my true inner passion was, that I was a musician, I said, Joe, I'm not losing focus. For me, I'm like, I'm not getting caught up in the rat race. Right now, the things that I'm going to do for money, it's all got to be related to my rhymes. I'm nickel and dominant, selling CDs, doing shows. I'm trying to make it work. You know, I, I had managed to, to pay some rent. I got this fat crib. But then, you know, soon after moving in, fell behind. Falling behind, falling behind. And the landlord is like, yo, I'm not feeling it trying to evict me all types of times. I've been to court on multiple occasions. Comes to a point where I am five months behind in my rent. I'm five months behind, all right? At almost a grand a month, five grand in the hole. So I make the decision. When I go to court tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell the judge, I give up. I ain't got no money. I'm going to get out of the place, right? Okay. So next morning, I wake up, walk over to the courthouse. When I get into the courthouse, I got to speak with the court clerk, right? I speak with this woman, and for some reason, who knows why, she's like, yo, what are you going to do? You're not going to give the place up, right? Like, what do you mean? I, you know, you have the record in front of you. I have no money. She says, don't give up. You have to tell the judge you'll get it. Tell the judge, give you 15 days. Whatever you got to do, you can't give up. This is the court clerk, mind you. She's supposed to be on their side. I said, miss, what am I supposed to do? She looks at me with a look in her eye like she cares about me, like she feels real concerned for my well-being. And she's like, yo, trust me, B. Get 15 days. So I say, all right, fine. She just talked me into telling the judge that I was going to have the money in 15 days. I go in front of the judge. I say, judge, 15 days, I'll have it. Judge, of course, says, what do you mean 15 days, you'll have it? I say, 15 days, boom. That's, you know what I'm saying? <coughs> Despite the fact that I clearly have no idea where the money's going to come from, the judge says, fine, and he gives me 15 days. It doesn't make any sense. Nothing that happened in court that day made sense. I leave, just flabbergasted, and when I get home, sat down, turned the computer on, took the internet that I was stealing from somebody else's internet in the building, and the first email I see, Tag Records, MC competition today, this afternoon, Rucker Park, grand prize $5,000. Grand prize $5,000. And when I see this, I feel like a feeling washing over me of just like, you know, magic of some sort of, or 
divine intervention for real. You know what I'm saying? The prize money was what I owed on this very day. I feel like all I got to do is show up, win, which is obviously going to happen based on the psychosis that just took place in the courtroom. And this is crazy to me. You know what this is. Hey. It's Jermaine Dupree's Tag Records, right? And I go over there. This place is packed. Rucker Park jam-packed. Fence to fence, okay? And the crowd was nuts. It was deranged out there. This particular competition, it wasn't a rap battle. It wasn't predicated on dissing each other, trying to cut each other down, which is something that I personally do not get down with. Instead, it was a let's see who could rap incredible competition, which of course I was built for. But somebody's getting a $5,000 grant, that's correct? Definitely, without a doubt. I mean, that's what the whole tag. It started off with like 40 MCs, right? Each round, the winner was determined based on crowd noise. The, the cats who get the loudest response are going to go, you know, to the next round. And everybody got up in the first round and, and, and spit their bars and all that. Of course, I get up there. Boom, I shut it down with a verse. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Files on the ball open. People found me out smoking. I'll be out smoking. People in the house smoking. I'll be out voting. Don't get broke by the from the beginning, the crowd is loving me like crazy. Obviously, I'm on to the next round. Next round. It is what it is, and it isn't what it wasn't, what it ain't. Is another dime a dozen I don't cover, I create. When there's nothing in my cupboard, I'll be guzzling V8. I'm concerned with how the government and governor behave. I'm fed up with all the rubbish that the young is you made. Yes, Can't nobody rhyme like me, and it's always been that way. So it becomes apparent that I am the crowd favorite, with the exception of one other person. There's this kid named Cash Flow. I remember the kid's name, Cash Flow. And Cash Flow was from across the street. He was from the building across the street and knew half the people in the park. I get to the last round. Comes down to me and Cash Flow. Cash Flow and I were going back and forth, and the crowd was just maximum noise, couldn't get no louder each time. The judges keep going, all right, go again. So we go about three extra rounds. And there was really no way to differentiate his crowd noise from my crowd noise. So they had to go and get this decibel noise meter reader. Once they brought the noise meter out, they had us do one more round. And I went first. The most impressive professor versus the senses and self-assessed of the message and take inventions with my father in heaven. And I got bars until the earth stopped spinning. So I spit all types of bars, right? My son was soldiers and shoulder to shoulder versus the soldiers that pull us over the soakers with hoses. And the crowd made gigantic, stupendous, enormous noise. And you look on his device and it was super loud. And I'm like, yo. He's not gonna top that this kid. You know what I mean? So then he gets up. He spits his bars and you know, I'm not trying to downplay him. He could rap. And like I don't know if his cousins was there, mother, brother, aunts, uncles, aunts, sisters, sister-in-law, grandparents, whoever was there. They went berserk for him. They were screaming. People was getting nosebleeds. <sighs> they went as wild as they can. And you look at the device when he was finished. I was down by point oh two. When they announced that he had beat me by those point oh two, you know, I, I, I try to never feel bad if I do my best. And I know I had done my best, but it didn't even make sense. I was like, nah, this can't, it, it can't be. It can't be that I didn't win this, you know what I mean? Like, he got it by the most slenderest of margins that is just like if a bird flew overhead, the bird's wings determine the outcome of the competition. And that was it, and he read it off, and the crowd was majorly like, no, hell no, yeah, hell yeah. This is Tag Records when Jermaine Dupree was doing the Tag Records thing. A couple of minutes later, Jermaine Dupree emerges. Okay, he comes out, steps out on the stage, and he says, yo, it's a tie. Jermaine Dupree, you know, because he knows his hip-hop, he said, this Sandman kid is not going to lose to this kid, Cash Flow. It's a tie, done deal. They both going to get the money. Word to the mouth. 
It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Maybe we'll have to split this, and I'll get a nice 2500 I'll go back to the judge's 2500 He'll be like, all right, I'll give you a little more time. Yo, they gave me the full five Gs. They gave me the full five Gs, okay? As if I had won the joint outright. As it turns out, I got evicted five months later. Okay, I got evicted five months later, but... In the five months that winning that competition bought me, such significant things happened in my career. The day that I got evicted, the next day I was leaving for three weeks to be on the road. The moral of the story is, go for it, son. Go for broke. You know you're going for broke? Because you broke. And when you go for broke, God is going to look out. And Jermaine Dupree is going to look out too. Peace. My sixth sense keen I seize the existence squeeze between the herd and scene My urban streets got rivers and streams Berg and D My insurance is web MD My cup runneth over My tank runneth on MD My man pointed out Even though there's no I in team There's an M and E My click ride deep My crib 5D My kicks and my tops and That's how homeboy Sandman gets down His latest record White Sands Is out right now on Stone's Throw Records. And understand, the music for that piece, all of it, was taken from Homeboy Sandman's catalog. We'll have links on our website, snapjudgment.org. And if there was any question, that piece was produced by Pat Masidi Miller. Now, Daniel Goldstein lives right here across the bay in San Francisco. Now, Daniel's an artist and he tells Snap's Anna Sussman a story about his first love. You know, he was my first love. How'd you mean? He was my best friend's date. <laughs> and my best friend wasn't interested, and I was. Um, I just thought he was fascinating. And plus, he was gorgeous, so... <laughs> What was interesting about him being a scientist in the gay community is that wasn't really, not necessarily, not that it wasn't accepted in the gay community, but it wasn't highly valued. And so then here comes the AIDS epidemic, and he becomes a very highly valued member of the community because he has information. first memory of what we now know as HIV? So right at the beginning I was aware of it and Steve, because he was an immunologist, was hyper aware of it and he was reading everything he could get his hands on because all of our friends were totally freaking out and so they were coming to him and going, what is this? People were dying, literally, they'd be fine, they'd go into the hospital and then four days later they were dead and it was really quick. Um, really mysterious. At first it was called the gay cancer. So it was just like any little cough or any little spot on your skin, you know, a pimple or something, you were freaking out. There was no test available, but um, Steve, my partner, was working at the lab and they actually had the test in the lab. Um, So he took our blood to the lab and didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night. But I do remember when he came home and said, we're both positive. You know, this it sounds so weird when I tell people this, but the first thing I thought of when I, became, when I found out I was positive was like, I have all these sculptures in my head, and if I don't do them now, I may never get to do them. I mean, it's sort of weird. You wanted to make more sculpture. Right. What did he want to do? What did he, he wanted to research. I mean, he, he wanted to save our lives. He found out about a study that had been done in Africa on a drug that seemed to have some efficacy. This drug was called Suramin, and they decided to do a study in this country. In total, there were 80 people who were in the study. Of course, I mean, yeah, we talked about whether it was a good idea, but also it was, there was nothing else. 
so we would go to General Hospital and sit in this chair and they would uh, stick a needle in our arms and you'd sit there for a couple hours. And I mean, I've, I've had friends with cancer go through chemotherapy. It was like that times like five. I could barely move. It was just, it was a horrible drug. After about a month of it, I just thought, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. It's just like, I think I'll just wait. Steve kept on with the drug. Was he upset with you? No, not at all. No, he totally understood it. I just, you know, he respected that I just didn't want to do it anymore. And so Steve had been stayed on it for like a month or two longer. And then I just said, I think, I think you should go off of this. It's just going to hurt you. But by then it was too late. And he just got sicker and sicker. And in January, he died. There were 80 people in the study, including me. 79 people died. I was the only one who made it through, and mostly because I quit. A couple of months after uh, Steve died, I was back at General Hospital and I was talking to the guy who had organized the study and he told me about this meeting of all the doctors from across the country who had been in charge of the study. And he said he'd never been in a room before of doctors and clinicians who were sobbing because they lost, they basically lost all their patients. Back then, AIDS was a death sentence, you know, pure and simple. Probably the only way I could explain what that kind of loss looks like or feels like is um, imagine yourself going to a party and there's 20 people at the party. Imagine a year later that 16 of those people are dead. There's only four of you left. That's what it was like. I, I didn't plan. I wouldn't take commissions because I didn't know if I was going to be around in three months to do it. You know, I did not plan on living. And most, you know, most of us did not. I know lots of people who basically maxed out all their credit cards. I would go into my studio, literally look around, like turn around 360 degrees and walk out. I was just like, I couldn't handle it. You need to be focused in order to do art. And when you lose somebody, that's the first thing that goes is your focus. But the art did come back and the art really helped me back into the world. It's, it, it, all, it all started with um, workout bench covers, leather workout bench covers from my gym. Seriously? Yeah. The gym that I went to, it was the main gay gym in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic, the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I would say probably most of the people who went to that gym are dead. It was a place where, you know, inside your body was being racked by this disease, but the outside, you could at least try to make yourself strong on the outside. It was also, it was like the town square. It was where you found out who was in the hospital, who was sick. So I used to look at these pieces of leather that we would work out on, and there were just the patina on them was beautiful. I just know that I, I wanted them, and I bribed the, the manager. They would take them off and replace them with new leather. And I'd say, please, please, no, don't throw them away. Save them for me. He gave, me, gave them to me, and I brought them home to the studio and laid them out on the floor, didn't know what to do with them. Then one day I took one, which was about... Six feet tall, big one, had been for a big sit-up bench. And I tacked it up to the wall and it literally blew me across the room. It was sort of like the Shroud of Turin, but it was a whole body. It was astonishing. I don't know what you're saying. Um, I tacked it to the wall. I tacked this piece of leather to the wall and because people had been working on, out on it, for years and sweating into it and you know rubbing up against it because they're working out they had rubbed away the surface of the leather and what was left was an image a ghost of a body and it was really strong and i thought okay i have to honor these because this is not the shroud of turin of one guy this is the shroud of every man all their dna 
is in these pieces. You know, I need to honor them. It took me quite a while to figure out how to do it. I sort of made these, they looked almost like packing crates and put them in it real simple with black background and copper around them and plexiglass in the front. They've been in museum shows all over the world and um, people got it. People really got what they were about. Um, I get survivor's guilt questions sometimes. I never quite know what to say. I'm glad I survived. I'm really glad I survived. I don't feel guilty. I miss my friends. But it's not guilt. I'm glad I'm here. I can tell their stories. I want to thank Daniel for sharing his story of love and loss with the SNAP. We found out about Daniel by way of the remarkable documentary, We Were Here. We're going to have a link to the film at snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman, with sound design by Renzo Gorio. It's happened. It's the end of the big dance, yeah. But don't let the magic get away. Full episodes, movies, pictures, stuff. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. Can't wait? Find it on the iTunes, on the SoundCloud, Twitter, Stitcher, Facebook. Snap was produced by myself and the grandest crew of audio magicians ever assembled. Mark Ristich, Pat Masidi Miller, Stephanie Thu, Anna Sussman, Julia DeWitt, Nick Vanderkolk, Renzo Gorio, and Will Urbina. Now, just because you're doing the Making It Work episode doesn't mean that you should arrive at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting in anything less than appropriate business attire. Making it work without clothing is not an acceptable option, and I apologize for any distress my unannounced butt-naked visit may have caused last Thursday. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org, and understand that this is not the news. No way is this a news. In fact, if I were to open this window right now and look into the sky and see glowing orbs falling, falling all around us right now, you should know that even though this is not the news, this is NPR. 